You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Welcome to the 602 Club, TFM's local watering hole. We're so excited to be here. This week we are at episode 300. Now, I know you're thinking, you're saying to yourself, Matt, you've already done more than 300 episodes because you've got all those supplementals. And I'm like, I know, but this is actually labeled episode 300. So we're so excited to be here. And you know, I just realized it probably would have been a good idea to talk about the movie 300 on episode 300, but that's not what we're going to do. We're going to celebrate 40 years of Superman 2 tonight. And we're sad to say Christy wanted to be with us, but she is just not feeling good enough to be able to get behind the mic today. And so... What are we going to do? We had to bring in our good friend Scott from Suicide Squadcast. Or you guys changed your name, so it's not Suicide Squadcast anymore. It's... DC Film Squadcast, yes. That's right, DC Film Squadcast. So, branching your horizons, you don't want to just pegged as that Suicide Squad. No, and we will be completely honest that the name, considering our fan base, got a little uncomfortable in the last three years. So, we just thought, yeah, mm. we need to change that right. name. So, 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 not everybody was liking this, this No, we, we had some concerns, and we held those concerns ourselves, and we just thought, you know what, it was a great pivot point to... To change the name. We do we do miss how it rolls off the tongue, but we feel like the, the other considerations outweigh the catchiness of the it's pun. <laughs> Although it might be worth coming back to once The Suicide Squad is released, because, man, that movie looks pretty legit. That movie, I will admit, DC Fandom made me go from, eh, I'll go watch it because I have to, to... Okay, I'm interested. Like I like that that was one of those movies that fandom made like the biggest difference for me. It was like never mind. I I will withhold judgment at this point. Well, and I know we'll both be excited to maybe go back to the movies whenever they reopen movie theaters if that ever oh, happens. Oh, I've already been back um, to the movies. Sorry. I hate to I hate to I hate to um, Well, I have two. I have two. I, but I had to drive an hour. I did go see Tenet. I I so. saw New Mutants and Tenet. So, nice. Yes. Very nice. So, uh, well, as I mentioned, we're here celebrating episode 300. Of course, you know, do that by uh, finding us wherever you get your podcasts, you know, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Amazon Music now, too. I mean, we're just all over the place. If you're on Apple Podcasts, you know, celebrate with us. Give us a review. Let us know what you think of the show. Uh, It definitely still helps people find the show. If you look at the numbers, the Apple system, whether it's on iTunes or your iPhone or some sort of device like that, iDevice, it's still the biggest place people are getting podcasts. So those reviews really matter. Uh, you can also find us uh, now on Twitter, at The602 Club. So please follow us, and we love having conversations with you guys. Um, so so tweet at us, follow us. Uh, you can find us on Instagram, at The602 Club TFM. So follow us there. Posting pictures, enjoying talking to people over there as well. 
course, they got the entire network at Trek FM on Twitter and Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. We've got the listeners only discussion group, the Babel Conference, to talk about all things happening here on the network from listeners all around the world. And then you've got Trek FM, which is our main website um, where you can find all of the shows we're doing. And there's a contact section there. If you want to send Christy and I an email, you can do that over at trek.fm slash contact. So all of that out of the way, Scott. This was so interesting for me to get back into and rewatch Superman 2 because it had been a while. And I was struck by how much, you know, because um, even before you get to the movie, there's so much that happens behind the scenes with this movie. Uh, and it's kind of legendary now, all the things that went on behind this movie. But legitimately, you know, both you and I uh, up front were fans of what Zack Snyder did on the big screen. Uh, with uh, the DC superheroes, especially, you know, with Man of Steel and Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, Ultimate Edition. Um, so uh, this, to me, was fascinating because I felt like, as I was rereading some of the things that went behind the scenes, this was basically the first Justice League. Like, this is the first movie where everything that can go wrong behind the scenes with a director and the producers goes wrong and it shows in the film yes i mean that was kind of the funny thing that when for the last three years through justice league and the release of snyder cut movement and all of that i just felt like i had a primer on how this how this all goes wrong because since 2000 2001 i had been so steeped between commentaries and behind-the-scenes documentaries, and then back in 2005 when the Donner cut of Superman 2 was finally released. I mean, it it, it felt like deja vu. I, I've, 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 done the, I've done this dance. Like, I know how this works. Right. I mean, I even feel like that's why, you know, Zack's version of Justice League even gets the nickname The Snyder Cut because of Superman 2 being called The Donner Cut when it was finally released. Yeah, no, I I think you're absolutely right. You know, it it made absolute sense to me that this would be a thing to which people would be, um, you know, looking back on because, you know, it, it it's one of those things, and this is fascinating too because I feel like this is maybe one of the first times in cinema history where you were filming movies back to back. Yes, and not even you know, back to back. Uh, and, like, and again, like it might be the same t- like at the same time. Yeah, it, because yes, of Brando yes. and Hackman. Donner had a, a certain window, so he had to make sure that whatever period of time he had, he was filming their scenes for both movies, you know, concurrently because he only had them for this long. Yeah, and and that's the thing that was fascinating to me because um, as they get a little bit behind schedule, they quote unquote go over budget, even though Donner says he never got uh, a budget list from the Salkinds. Uh, they basically just tell him, look, you know what? Stop filming to just focus on one. We're just going to get that done. Yes. And at that point, they've already shot 75% of two. Like, They've got most of the movie. Yes. Well, it also helps that when Mario Puzo originally wrote the screenplay, Superman 1 and Superman 2 was one movie. I mean, that was how it was originally uh, written. It was a giant screenplay. And it just got to the point that they were like, they found a stopping point to go, 
here's where we can chop this into two separate movies because it's also famous for how the ending for Superman, the movie Superman 78, you know, turning the world back was supposed to be the ending for Superman two. Superman one was supposed to end on a cliffhanger. So when this decision was made to stop filming on two, let's just, let's just get one done. Cause we need to hit that Christmas release date for 78. That was when the decision was made to take the really cool ending from two and slap it on one with kind of a, we'll worry about two later. We just need to get one done. Yeah. And, and I mean, what's, what's really interesting too, is that as we uh, work through them finishing the actual, the first movie, they have to bring in Richard Lester who had worked for them on the three Musketeers and the four Musketeers is basically an intermediary between them and Donner because that relationship has soured so bad. Although they were not speaking to each other at all. I mean, between Donner and the main cast, who was very, once again, you talk about parallels, very loyal to Donner and do not have kind things to say about the Salkinds. I mean, basically, if there was going to be any communication, Lester kind of got... You feel bad for Richard Lester because he kind of became not only the intermediary, he was kind of the punching bag. It's like, you know, it's like it's like when you were it's like when your kid like when someone doesn't want to talk to you and like they make your friend they make their friend talk to you instead that Lester was the friend in the middle. He was the telephone between the Saul Kynes and Donner. Yeah. And and that's the interesting thing. In fact, when Donner gets the information a telegram telling them he will not be needed again. How do they tell him? By telling him that his friend Richard Lester is taking over. Like that's that's the wording. Is like ah, uh, we got your friend taking over. We're good. You we don't need you anymore. Like how awful was that? Oh my god, <laughs> it's just terrible. There was an interview with Donner where he talked. I mean, it was Donner, or if it was Margot Kidder, or someone. Uh, or maybe even Tom Mankiewicz that said they truly believe that the only reason the Saul kinds felt comfortable enough to cut Donner off was because Superman 78 was such a success. They truly believed that if Superman, the movie had bombed, they would have forced Donner to finish Superman two just out of spite. Now, once again, that's someone's opinion about it, but but you can imagine them going, good, we made our money, we're good, we can basically afford to cut you off. Yeah, and I mean, I think it makes sense because you ha- you have this movie that's huge, and you know that at this point in time, you're you're really just going. I mean, you're going to just get people back mm-hmm. into the theater. They they want to this movie so big. You're going to want to see more Superman, and so they don't have anything to worry about. But what's really interesting before we even get them, this is this was fascinating to me because I didn't know this bit of trivia that they actually asked Guy Hamilton of James Bond fame. Mm-hmm to come in and take over the directorial reins of Superman 2 before they decide to get Lester because Lester was already working on another film at that point and and they didn't think he'd be able to make it. And that fascinated me 
because I was like, oh my gosh, Guy Hamilton. You know, I love his Bond work, but I'm trying to imagine exactly what it would look like for him to do Superman 2 and might have turned out better because what he did with Bond was give Bond that mythos, that feeling of gravitas and like cool and I'm kind of wondering if he might have just been a better choice in the end anyway. Uh, you know, if um, if he had actually, you know, taken the 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 job, he was unavailable. Uh, and so by the time they're ready to film, or at least start refilming things for Superman 2, Lester's available and they just go with him. Well, and that's also the interesting part of Superman 2 was when we give out the statistics that Superman 2 was already 75% done, that doesn't even cover the fact that they had to reshoot stuff that Donner had shot just so they could get past DGA rules to put Lester's name in the directed by credit. Because if Lester had just finished the remaining 25% of the film, Donner's name would still have to appear on the movie. And the Saul kinds were vindictive enough that they just wanted to completely remove Donner's name off it entirely, even though they do end up using entire scenes that Donner shot, they were able to replace enough of that 75% that by DGA rules at the time, they were able to slap Lester's name on the movie. Which is so weird because as you watch the movie, there is this kind of back and forth between you can, and then the whole fun thing, honestly, of watching this cut is to be like, okay, which scenes are Donner's and which scenes are Lester's, you know? And it's it's easy to tell, I think, Lester's work. Lester's work is, uh, and he even says this, this was fascinating to me, that, um, you know, Donner had really wanted to create this mythos, this very grand, glorious, myth, mythic feeling for these characters, uh, and, and really create kind of an epic film, and that that wasn't him at all. You know, he was quirky and wanted to play around with what he called unexpected silliness oh he did it he did it yeah and so i think that's really interesting as you watch this movie is you can really see lester's fingerprints all over the place in the in the places that he plays up the things that are i think you know personally uh, in in donner's version he just exemplifies by a thousand Right. You know, um, he, he doesn't know when to rein off like the jokes. He doesn't know when to rein off the silliness and the weirdness. And, and it just it it was really fascinating to me to see how I mean, you can really just see the way that Lester's fingerprints uh, are all over this movie in the way that he makes it in his image. And I will say it's the same way in Justice League. You can see Joss Whedon's fingerprints all over that movie. Uh, the theatrical release, um, because it's um, it's just uh, it, it it truly is. I mean, it, well, as you were saying in the beginning, we have this blueprint for how this goes because we had seen it before. Well, and also Donner's cinematographer had passed away after Superman seventy eight, I believe, and so there's also like what we talk about with Justice League. Even the way it's shot, there's a quality to the stuff that Donner shot. There's that cloudy, 
almost dreamlike quality over any shot. Like you, you can just tell just based on the film quality, like the film, like the physical film itself and the, the lighting, you can tell Donner shot that because he shot it with his cinematographer. And then when you see things that Lester shot, it's so flat and it, it, it doesn't even have the, the palette that, that those Donner shots have. So it does become that game of, yep, that was a Donner shot. That was a Lester shot. Well, and part of that too, is that he brings in his own cinematographer. He has to change, um, the, uh, set designer. Cause John Barry, uh, had collapsed on the set of the empire strikes back. So that's different. And, uh, they don't, and this is the other thing too. This is what makes, I think Lester's work. And, and I, do feel sorry for him in some way is that they just don't really have the money to go back and reshoot a bunch of these scenes in the same way they would have with the original film Mm -hmm. so you because of that we're never in new york city uh we're always on a back lot and everything else just doesn't look like it has the money behind it that they had put into the original Superman. I mean, even the the effects are not very good Mm-mm. compared to the originals, which is weird to say that the sequel's effects are worse than the original's effects. Yes, because normally the, you know, sequels are always bigger, better, like, or at least, you know, you you did great with the first one, so we give you even more for the second one in hopes that you'll make more money with the second one. I mean, that's just, that. that's usual, that's normal movie Hollywood logic. But basically, when you threw all your money into the first production, where you were already planning on filming two movies at one time, you think you would have used some of those profits from 78 when you wanted to go back and redo number two. And I guess that's just not what the Saul kinds had in store. And you watch more documentaries about the making of these movies and the Saul kinds are most definitely, they are painted as the villains of this production. That's normally what ends up happening. Even the documentaries that the Saul kinds themselves are even included. They, they don't even come off well themselves. Well, and, and, and one of the things I thought was really interesting and just, uh, kind of, um, as as a as a representation of one of the scenes in which um they had they had thought through um and it was originally in the script so they wanted superman to be given back his powers by his father and kind of aka have it be the creation of adam you know they kind of touch fingers and he's you know reestablished as as the as superman uh and and given back his his extraordinary powers and and they totally disregard that idea, and and instead of filming anything, it just takes place off screen, uh, and it just goes to show. It's one of those. It, this whole movie is a place where not only are Lester's fingerprints on the film in the way that he decides to deal with um, just the tone of the movie. But also the fingerprints of the Salkinds not really giving him more money uh, to to actually do what he needs to do um, to really make this as good as the first one either. Uh, and, and, and so I think it's it's 
when you're looking at the entire picture of what happens, it really is just a big mess. Mm-hmm. I mean, it truly is um, one of the and you know Hollywood productions are famous for things happening behind the scenes. And I mean, gosh, you know, uh, Casablanca, which is my favorite movie, has a thousand writers on it. You know, and somehow it's still the best movie ever. So you know, it's it's not impossible to make a movie with behind the scene problems and it still be one of the greatest movies of all time blade, this, how many cuts of blade runner do i own let's be let's be honest yeah i mean it, th- this is there is nothing new under the sun this is just one of those situations where it, i guess it's just one of the most famous examples of what happens when you play musical chairs with your directors in the middle of production and late in the middle of in late production. Mm-hmm. And I felt like this just became that, like the, the Donner Superman one and two, just until recently, it was the poster child for what happens when the producers just don't care for the director and just broom him out. Well, I think um, it goes to show. I liked what you were saying there because when producers believe that you can play musical chairs with directors and, and and that the product would turn out the same. Yes. I think that's obviously proven to be false here. It's obviously proven false in Justice League. Uh, and I'm sure there's other examples of that elsewhere. You know, it just doesn't quite work when, uh, gosh, American Graffiti, American Graffiti 2, you know. Um, so, you know... Those things just don't work without the original person behind them who brought them to life. You know, it would be like somebody else directing The Dark Knight. Why? Yeah. No. Exactly. No. (laughs) And it really does make you appreciate, you know, because really we're we're just talking about the theatrical version of Superman 2. We're not really talking about the Donner cut this evening, but it – it really does make you appreciate the thought and care that Donner did put into Superman 78 when you see what got released for Superman 2. Because while I will give Lester somewhat of a pass for the situation he was placed in, I can also say I don't care for Lester's style. And... I, I and I'm not even talking about like this Frankenstein of what happens with Superman two, and then you know later on you talk about you no know, he got he got full reign with Superman three, and it's just like it's just it it's not for me it's not what it's not what I subjectively choose to enjoy in a film, and so it it, it does make me go man what would have been like to see a 100 percent Donner production of Superman two. I mean, no, I I completely agree. Um, And I I think, you know, one of the things that I was really interested in 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 rewatching this was was just um, kind of digging into the story itself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the fact that, you know, we start off again um, on Krypton um, and uh, we get to see, um, you know, the the sentencing of Zod, that, that they are these criminals that they are um you know people who have who have been you know ransacking and and pillaging across apparently krypton uh and 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 i would say this is one of the places where i feel like the movie does a bad job right at the beginning is like 
we're told that these people, this is this is movie making 101, we're told that they're bad, but we never really see that they're bad. Well, we see Zod snap a crystal with absolutely no understanding of what's so terrible that he snapped this crystal, because that's obviously a reshoot, because you can you can tell. And then they have to completely redo the sentencing scene by completely cutting out Brando. Because it was another it was another dictate based on Brando not getting along with the Salkinds that Brando was not to appear in this movie in any way. All the stuff they shot for him for this movie had to be reshot and replaced or cut around. And that's what happens in this opening scene is you get a altered version of the opening scene from 78. And it just feels wrong. Yeah, it does. It really just feels like there's so much missing from the story. And so then they're banished to the Phantom Zone and they're released because of the actions that Clark takes uh, with, you know, saving uh, Lois and the the people on the Eiffel Tower from this nuclear device, um, which I thought was just, it seemed a little too convenient. <laughs> it was like one of those things where it's like, okay, so... That's that's convenient. They just happen to be flying past the same part of space at the same time. Like it it the the tangential connections to, to bring these things together did not feel right. It felt very um not well thought out. Well like somebody hadn't put a lot of thought into like why is the Phantom Zone passing by that close enough to Earth? Because Superman you know, he doesn't fling it that far into space outside our solar system. Well, and that's also one of those things that when you look at, you know, Superman 78 and then, you know, there's like three versions of Superman 78. And that's the benefit of, say, the special edition that Donner supervised because you do get the benefit of watching the Phantom Zone kind of follow Clark's ship from Krypton, which you do not get in the original theatrical version. Right. So it it makes it makes that more plausible than when you watch the theatrical version of 78 where you don't get that, you know, kind of feeling that the explosion of Krypton helped push the Phantom Zone on the same trajectory as, you know, Kal-El spaceship. Right, which makes much more sense that that that, that would happen. Um, and, you know, I, I think that th- this is the problem we, we end up with, um, you know, this theatrical cut is that there's a lot less clarity in the film as to why these things are happening together. Um, and I think, you know, that is um, uh, that's something that was really just even just the way too that the movie opens up with the credits and they use that as basically a reminder because they show you all of 78 again in three minutes about what happens in that movie. And I was wondering myself, like I get that, that this comes out a few years afterwards, but like, did people really forget what happened in 78 that you need the credits to like, and it's really badly edited yes it is and that's the problem it's like it's the editing of it that makes it so atrocious well and also not only the editing makes it so atrocious but also what part of superman 78 
did you actually need to see for this cut of Superman 2 to work? I mean, we're not, this is not the Donner cut that is very connected. Like, you you know, the way Superman 1, Superman 2 were originally envisioned, it was literally going to be one into the other. Like, so that would have, so having a, quote, recap after a two-year gap, that would have made more sense. But the way they reshot and rewrote this movie to make it, so much more standalone really puts that opening credit decision into question. Why do you need to recap 78? I, I mean, I, I think that the only, I mean, the the real connections that you get are actually, I mean, the biggest, the biggest reminder is life. Right. And Ms. Tesmacher, you know, <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, and even that, it, it doesn't feel like it's it's absolutely necessary to be reminded of because they kind of remind you in the movie itself, you know, like, so, um, yeah, I think, I think it's just really interesting that the, the storyline there um, just doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't seem to really add up. And, and then the one thing that, okay, so kind of been talking about some of the things that don't work, but the one thing I think it does work in this movie is the classic Superman struggle of Lois and and if and when she finds out and how she finds out, you know, because that's that's classic to the comics. And so that part of the story, this this kind of love story angle that we're going to go for, like that's set up in the first movie that we're going to kind of explore this idea further. And... I think it's a great setup. I think it's a great idea to explore those characters now as, you know, Lois even says, I'm a reporter. This makes so much sense. Duh. Like, you know, um, so the fact that they go there here in that this movie to allow her to figure it out and everything, I think is a fantastic way to kind of create this part of the movie. Well, and also that not only do they go on the journey for her to figure it out, but that he then, like, brings her in. Like, the idea of her going to the Fortress of Solitude and becoming more of a... I mean, she still has to go through some damsel in distress stuff, but she she gets to be more actively involved than she ever got to be in 78. Yep. So... At least where the story was going, there was supposed there was supposed to be some good progression for Lois between one and two. Right, right. Uh, no, absolutely. That she kind of gets more to do, and, and I mean, we see that too in in uh, the beginning of the film where she's more active. She's pursuing the story. She's putting her life in danger, and it's not just because Superman's going to come and save her. It's just because. She's going to go out there. She wants to win the Pulitzer Prize, you know, like she's a go-getter. And, you know, so you've got all that, which I think um, is is not necessarily a bad way to start the story. Um, I think, to me, you, you, you have that goodness, but then with what we kind of add to Superman here... Um, the movie adds things to the the mythos of Superman, and and it's really interesting. So, staying on specifically the the Lois section, um, I don't understand. 
why we decide that Superman must become immortal to be with Lois, other than we need him to be depowered for a little bit for reasons. And for me, this is where I get very, I have to be very careful because this is one of those changes they make in editing between the theatrical version and in the Donner cut. And, and and I hate – and I feel like that's not what we're talking about tonight, so I hate bringing up the Donner cut, but only to say the sequence of scenes, the sequence of events that occurs as originally envisioned make that make more sense than I feel like it does in this theatrical version, which really leads to the issues that you're bringing up. Because in this movie, it feels like the reason that Superman really wants to be depowered is because he doesn't want to be in the super friend zone. Mm-hmm. Like, that's his main motivation. I don't want to be in the super friend zone with Lois. I, 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 I want to be with her. So I'll, I'll put the entire world at risk from who knows what's going to come. I'm going to give up my powers forever so I can be with Lois. And it's like... One of the things that we end up adding to here to Superman is an ultimate selfishness. Right. But but also a selfishness that doesn't seem to have the lesson that needs to get learned from it. Because something that was originally in the script is, once again, that great sense of Jor-El teaching Kal-El a lesson. That you're going to, you know, he... Because you know Jor-El gives him those looks. He 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 he's telling him he's screwing up, and it's like you got you got to learn from this. You know, there's things you still need to learn. And I feel like that when you remove Brando, when you take Jor-El out of the narrative, you take away the gravitas of yes, Superman's making a bad choice, but you don't have the person there telling him. You're making a bad choice. This is not what you're here for. Because we've seen in movies and in television and in comics, Superman making bad choices every once in a while. But it's always made crystal clear that it's a bad choice and that there's a lesson to learn from it. And the stakes aren't there in this cut of the movie. It's just like, I'm going to do it. Oh, it didn't work out. And then I immediately go back and get my powers and everything's okay. Without the sense of, did you learn your lesson? Did you understand what it means to be you, to be a hero? Which exists in another cut of the movie, but does not exist in this cut of the movie. Yeah, I I think, you know, that's the thing that that is so frustrating about watching the film is because, you know, again allowing superman to um just go easily get back his powers and then the only thing he gives up at the end is by super memory erasing kissing lois Mm -hmm. which is the weirdest i mean power superman's ever had other than the one where a mini superman could cut him out of his hand i think that was a weird one i i have to i have to admit that was that was a weird one in the silver age yeah uh-huh but yeah but the amnesia kiss i've always oh, you know and even then even the amnesia kiss 
that scene just doesn't even that scene doesn't have the gravitas of feeling like he's actually giving something up. Like, I I don't get the sense of loss in that scene. Right. Because once again, that was a reshoot. They went back and rewrote and reshot and that entire scene and it just doesn't play the way narratively it's intended to play in the overall story between one and two. Yeah. And, and it, it, the thing that about it that really doesn't end up working for me is that the movie never does a great job of explaining why can't Superman be with a mortal person just because he has powers. Like it, 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 there's no other thing than like his mother telling him, no, you have to be mortal. Why? Mm-hmm. Like it, that doesn't make any sense. It, it just doesn't make any sense. So, um, and there's all sorts of gross reasons I could come up with, with this is a family show. So we're not going to talk about those. Um, the other things that, that are very interesting here to adding to Superman, um, a cellophane S. Oh. He can pull an S off of his chest and wrap somebody in cellophane and disable them for a while. I did not know that about Superman, Scott, but apparently um, that is an, a power that should never come back. No, no, the cellophane S. Uh, no, no. I, I got a little Chicago there going, cellophane. Fain, I missed a cellophane. <laughs> Should have been my name. I mean, it's just, it's just like okay, good, 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 good to know that. I also particularly in, uh, do not enjoy the. I'm going to magically teleport all around this fortress of solitude. And what was that? And not only could he do it, the Phantom Zone criminals could do it too. It's like where did where did this come from? Like suddenly everyone has a super teleporting slash hologram mirage powers it's and we had seen holograms earlier in the movie but it didn't make it look like that it was like the fortress of solitude creating holograms for superman right yeah like we had seen lex do it so it's just it, it it's weird it, you know it's one of those it's one of those times where you're like either you're embracing the silver age where you're just making up powers as you go along or what you have is we've written ourselves into a corner because, once again, the uh, this entire sequence is reshot and rewritten and reshot without the original people involved. And we're just making stuff up because who cares? No one knows the source material. No one's going to know this isn't really a thing. We just need to write ourselves out of a corner. Well, and I mean, you make a good point there. In the 80s, you know, the geek culture didn't exist as it is today and the amount of people who would have known the you know the source material the the way that so many fans do today would not have been the case you know i mean comic book fans were a much more segregated part of the society and the amount of people that were actually reading comic books and they were probably much younger you know you're so people like yourself and I who have read a lot of the source material and have studied the source material and are like, you know, do research and all that, that's that's not something that would have existed. One, because they didn't have the Internet just to be able to go look it up and, you know, and they were to go book, look in specific issues. And, you know, so all of that is very different. But, no, I, I think it just it was easier for them because they could do whatever they wanted to do. And who was going to say no, especially if you are basically using the silver age as a basis where yes 
Superman can have a mini Superman come out of his hand, and that's normal in the comics for a while. So, um, I, I also have an interesting question about what is the laser pointer power that Zod and his cronies have? Because I don't understand that power either. Uh, well, between the laser pointy power and the ability to uh, telekinetically move things with your heat ray vision, uh, you know that that was an interest. All all of those. Um, the Phantom Zone criminals apparently, I guess the Phantom Zone just gave them a whole additional set of powers. Like, if we want to headcan this, I, I'm like, man, you know, you spend enough year, you spend 33 years in the Phantom Zone. Apparently, some weird things happen to you, even more so when you get exposed to Yellow Sun. I don't uh, know. Apparently, apparently, it's like, um, yeah. It's like they were uh, on a, a special diet in the Phantom Zone, and then when they came out, the Yellow Zone did even more things to them. Yeah, I like that. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I do have to say, I think that the end of the movie, making Superman and Lois murderers at the end, uh, and then having Superman beat up a trucker uh, when he gets his powers back, may be the most antithetical things to Superman on the planet. Because... They legitimately have Superman and Lois murder them, send them to their deaths, uh, and basically laugh about it. Yeah. Now, and before somebody wants to bring it up, yes, I'm fully aware of the deleted scene that exists somewhere where they're apparently they're frozen in ice and floating away from the Phantom, uh, floating away from the Fortress of Solitude at the end of the movie. But the only thing I'll say is it's not in the movie. Based on what's actually on screen that makes it in either version of the movie that's been released, whether it's theatrical or the Donner Cut, no, they fall to their deaths into the dark pits of the Fortress of Solitude, as far as I'm concerned. And that's after they've been depowered. That's the part that gets me. They don't even have their powers anymore. You know, I'll give Non a pass. He's the idiot who tried to fly after being depowered. That's on him. But Zod and Ursa, no, you, you took them out after they didn't have powers anymore. Um, I know you could have just, I don't know, arrested them at that point. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're not running into a Man of Steel problem here where there's no way to depower Zod. And so is the only choice to snap his neck. OK, right. So, no, you, you could literally just arrest them, you know, like you're going to do Lex and put them all in prison. Because at this point, they're no more than mere mortals. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, the fact that, you know, again, like Lois punches uh, Ursa and she falls in and it's basically done for a laugh. It's like, okay, I see. Murder is is cool. And what's fascinating is, you know, people always get on like, you know, uh, Batman and not saving Ra's al Ghul. And it's like. I, I, I'm not going to kill you, but I don't have to save you. And that's basically the move that Superman pulls when, you know, Zod falls backwards. Like, he doesn't go to save him, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and so I just think it's kind of funny that people kind of hold these movies up in this high echelon. You got the characters doing the exact same things. Yeah, I know. I And, and boy, they don't like you pointing that out at all. So I'm just... Yeah, yeah, this will probably be our lowest rated episode. Anyway, um... <laughs> So the other thing, you know, as we were talking about the story here, one of the things that really surprised me uh, as I was rewatching this theatrical cut 
was what I termed the Lex problem. Yeah. Because the fact that we're not going to bring Hackman back to do any reshoots really hurts his effectiveness as a character in this movie so that he's almost useless. Like, you don't need him in the movie. In fact, you could have reorganized this entire movie to have never had Lex in it at all and probably made the movie better because you wouldn't have been wasting time on a character you don't really need in the movie. Um, Because he's just not... Let me put it this way. Superman Returns uses this idea so much better than Superman 2 actually does because Lex is is legitimately the key to that film uh, and what he's doing with the crystals, whereas here, he's just not needed. No, I mean, here's here's the thing, which is so weird to say, because, I mean, I, I, I mean... Hackman's Hackman's always enjoyable to watch. I mean, let's I mean Hackman 100%, 100%. Hackman's not the problem here. Like when we're talking about the Lex problem, we're not talking about Hackman. Cuz Hackman's doing what he does and he does it well. The what we're doing is when you And lo- he's very funny oh, God. too. Yes. Like him coming off is like and what he keeps calling himself the master criminal, but he really just feels like a two-bit criminal just trying to get his due, you know, like which, again, is funny, too. So, like, yeah, he's great in this movie for that. Right. But when you narratively look at it, why does he have to be in this movie? I mean, he goes to the Fortress of Solitude. And that has absolutely no effect. Basically, that's just for him to find out that the Phantom Zone is a thing. So that when... Ursa, Nan, and Zod show up. He knows what's going on. So he just walks into the White House. And basically, the only thing that, only purpose he serves is to draw Zod's attention to the fact that the son of Jor-El is on Earth. Which would have happened anyway, Probably. Well, and maybe not, because at that point, he's or- that Superman's already given up his powers. So, you know, he has to be the one to let Zod know that, to basically call him out on national news. But you could have had it where he's just there and Kal- and Clark sees him and goes, oh, crap. I need to, I, I, what am I supposed to do? I don't have my powers. But, like, it, the only thing Lex does is to point them like a gun and say, Jor-El's son's here. Go go get him. And then at the end, he plays a part in helping Superman trick the, the criminals so that they lose their powers instead. Except for those two points, Lex is not written to be an effective part of what we see on screen. A- absolutely. Um, I, I think, and this is the problem that you run into, is that you can only use the Donner footage with Hackman Mm -hmm. and so you're tied down to what's been done there and therefore it makes it ineffectual because you're not able to bring it in and fill it out in any way and so um, I I think it's just you know it's unfortunate because you know obviously if you're going to use this character especially one that was so beloved from the first movie you would hope that you were servicing the character better 
and they just don't. I don't. I I, I just don't see it here. I, I was watching the movie, and I was just like, why are we spending time with Lex? He's not doing anything that's that matters in this movie. Um, and it's disappointing because Zod and his posse should be the key to this film, and they don't have anything to do in this movie. Like, they they really don't. They are... Um, I would say one of the most boring set of villains that I've ever seen because they really don't do anything. They kind of stand around and look menacing in faux leather or whatever that is. Uh, you know, I think it's Victorian. Like, yeah, what is that? It's like velour yeah. or something. I, I don't know. I have no idea. I have no idea. And it's such a shame because you've got people like Terrence Stamp who you know you can do stuff with. But I think that's also something you're dealing with where when we talk about that 75% of Superman 2 was originally filmed and you still had 25% to go, unfortunately, that 25% was most of them. Like, their part of the movie was what still needed to be filmed. So what we're seeing, while what makes it on screen, is almost... Pure, almost, because, you know, there's still some stuff with Lex, but anything that's got the the Phantom Zone criminals and doesn't have Lex involved is almost 100% Lester. And so then we can go, well, this is why they're not compelling or threatening or interesting. It's because, well, that was that was the number two guy doing most of their stuff. And boy... Boy, does it show like the battle in the Midwest town and the, you know, the flying across and like heat visioning Mount Rushmore and so many other like just cringe worthy things that they do in this movie that doesn't make them threatening at all. When you watch something like the moon scene, which is Donner, and that can kind of legitimately, for the time, be kind of creepy as they're taking out those astronauts. Absolutely. Like, you get this menace to them. Yeah, you get this, uh, honestly, this kind of super creepiness to them. And I, instead, what you get with Lester is them running into Clifton Jones for some reason from the James Bond movie. So apparently Superman and James Bond are in the same universe. Interesting. Um, And... Yeah, the the scenes, it just doesn't work. Like, why are they beating up a small town in the middle of nowhere? It doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It just, um, and it's not, it's not really menacing them beating up farmers, Mm-mm. you know, and, and those kind of things. And, and, um, and the, and the way, like, what, what is with the blow scene where they're just blowing people away in the city of Metropolis. Oh, you call it the voice. I, I call it the wind under- tunnel. I call. It, I always call it the yeah. wind tunnel scene. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, let me just put it this way. It blows. Yes, it does. Because, you know, for the time, there's actually parts of that Battle of Metropolis fight that for 1979, yeah, 1980. Like, legit. Like. Yeah, like, okay, you have the limited technology. You literally just invented the technology for some of this stuff like two years ago. So I'm going to give you a pass on that. But you get stuff like the wind tunnel scene, you're like, no, you're throwing a bus around. You're throwing cars around. You're throwing them into billboards. 
work with that. Work with that. That's good. Don't just stand there and, you know, for the gag of going on for like what feels like five minutes of it. It goes on, I think, at least two minutes. And on screen, that's a lot of time. It's a very lot of time. And once again, it, it's very telling that when you watch the other cut of this movie, that's gone. You know, it's like it's always very interesting when you pay attention to what doesn't continue into the other cut of this movie. I think the thing is fascinating is we just don't really get any good explanation as to any of their motivations. And part of that is because we do have to cut out Brando from the beginning so you've taken away the animosity that they would have against the son of Jarrell mm-hmm. and by doing that um their like anger and frustration at this character is diminished i mean really he's just the only thing standing in the way of them ruling the planet which they don't even have fun doing ruling the planet they're just literally sitting in the white house in the oval office bored it's like at least show them doing something evil and fun, you know? Um, but they're they're just they're absolutely bored. Uh and I think it it just and let me say this too. The makeup job on them also doesn't make them look menacing. It makes them look pale. Emaciated. Emaciated, yes. Which it makes sense if they came out of the Phantom Zone, right? That they looked like that. But as the movie went on, they should have progressed to look more and more healthy and more and more alive and more and more the best version of themselves because they're being fed by the yellow sun, you know? And so, but there wasn't any obviously thought put into that. And so you don't end up with any of those things. And I, I, I just feel like, you know, this turns out you really have done a disservice to who are supposed to be the main villains of this film because they share time with Lex and it steals away from the opportunity for them to have... See, this is where you should have just rewritten the movie. If you knew you're not going to have Hackman back, rewrite the entire movie so you only have these as their villains. And then you can truly um, use that beginning scene. You know, you can... Um, really make them something that's fearful and scary and, and give them dimension and depth, but they never really do any of that. And I think they just come off as cookie-cutter bad people who are mustache-twirling and want you to kneel, but like, okay, that's not really that scary. Right, and and you know that there was a vision for them that was more than that because the whole point of them existing at the beginning of Superman 78 is obviously to set them up here. Like, that's the that's the arc of the film as originally envisioned is we introduce them at the beginning of the film so that they can show up at the end to kind of be that ultimate threat to Superman. And with all the rewrites and, you know, and the the lack of being able to shoot to have the original shot footage and what was originally intended to be shot you can just tell that 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 arc for them got chopped off at i mean that was they were just chop blocked at the knees for where those characters were supposed to go because you could just tell there's a reason they're there in 78 
there's a reason that the Phantom Zone is seen, like, when they get banished, they show back up after the destruction of Krypton. You know, it was building to them. And it's just frustrating how the production woes that this movie had affected their character arc so greatly. No, absolutely. Uh, I I think that that's said perfectly. And I think one more thing that was really interesting to me about this film was um, the fact that you they did not get John Williams back. Um, And so they have Ken Thorne filling in um, to, you know, use his themes and then create the rest of the soundtrack. And I wanted to ask you what you thought of that. Does he effectively uh, use the themes and create something that you and you know enjoyed, or did you feel kind of let down by the fact that it just it wasn't Williams? I'm let down by the fact that it's not Williams because it just he uses the themes. I feel in a cliche way, like you know, this is when you know this this feel. Okay. It's like when they bring Elfman on for Justice League. I'm going to go there. It's like we're going to we're going to force certain themes to fit in scenes because it feels like the most cliché or expected place to put it. And then also the score because it's not Williams. Because it's not Williams conducting the London Symphony Orchestra. It even musically feels and sounds punier than what Williams had in 78. Because when you've got Williams, when he's conducting, when he's orchestrating, when he's got the London Symphony Orchestra, I mean, that score is 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 a gorgeous piece of Williams' work. And it's one of the best he's ever done, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I always, like go between that and Indiana Jones when it comes to Williams, because both of them are so beloved for me. Um, you know, even, I mean, yeah, I, I know I'm missing on Star Wars here, but I'm talking about for these, but still, there's just something about it. But that's what you get when you get Williams. You get the London Symphony Orchestra. You get just instruments upon instruments in this gorgeous, rich sound. And it just, they don't have it here. You 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 don't follow up Williams with this because it sounds like a copycat. I mean, yeah, John. I, Ot- I agree. Sorry, I, I, I'm on a I'm a, musically. I'm just like I'm on a tear here. But it's like even John Ottman when he does Superman Returns, he at least tries to do things to make it his own, to make a to make his own score. And I don't feel like Ken Thorne either could or chose to do it. For Superman 2. I'm glad you brought up uh, Ottman because I actually love his score for Superman Returns. I think it's a it's a fantastic movie uh, because of that score. Uh, It's one of the best things about the movie Superman Returns is the score. So um, and part of that, too, is that, that he also adds his own flavoring to that. Um, to mix with what Williams did to create something that feels new and old all at the same time. So mm-hmm. uh, you just don't get that here, I think, in this in this movie. And I, I think it is disappointing, um, especially after, you know, Superman was just so fantastic from Williams. And so um, 
I'm really interested for you, you know, as you come down to it, we've talked through so many things about the film, all this behind the scenes stuff. So, so where do you come down on your ratings for the theatrical cut? I, it, it may sound harsh, but um, this is a movie that in the last 15 years, I've only kind of sort of watched this version of the movie twice in the last 15 years. I can't sit through this version of the movie. I, I just can't. So I'm going to say ratings-wise, I ended up giving this two cellophane S's out of five because I, I subjectively, I just – if I'm going to watch Superman 2, I'm going to watch the Donner cut because even though it's incomplete, for me, it's still a better movie than the theatrical cut because at least it feels like – at least a spiritual successor to Superman 78, which this theatrical cut does not. When I went back to Letterboxd to rate this after I watched it again, I had seen that I had given it three and a half stars. But after this rewatch, it's two and a half stars. So it lost an entire star. And I think part of that is because I can legitimately say it's half a good movie. There's some great ideas in here. Um, you know, again, I, I mentioned the whole idea of, of really diving into the, the the relationship between Clark and Lois with Superman, and that whole thing was is fascinating. Trying to get to and and they 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 try to talk about what it means to be Clark and Superman and how all that works, but just none of it really gets the time it needs, and it just it doesn't feel right. Um, it never feels like it gels as a film it feels like there's too many ideas and too many people behind the curtain and um you know the 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 job is just never completed in a satisfactory way to me and and it's it's really a mess of a movie um and it's sad to say um and this is nothing to do with my feelings on you know uh 78 and and you know and 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 this version of superman anyway um this movie has underpinnings to which could have been a, a fantastic sequel to 78 and been maybe even a better movie um, than 78. It's it's all taken away. The opportunity for that to happen, I think, is all taken away um, by the producers and their ridiculous feud with Donner for no good reason, especially when he made them bukus of money and could have done it again if they hadn't been such jerks to him. Um, I mean, this movie probably would have made three times as much as Superman the movie if they had been able to finish it the way he wanted to, um, especially since he would have left people on the edge of their seats waiting for the next film. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it, it's, it's disappointing. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things where... It's a part of film history, and and honestly, it was fascinating to me is that the Superman series, you know, starting with this, goes in decline. Mm -hmm. You know, three is not good, four is atrocious, you know, Superman Returns never makes it off the ground the way they want, even though it it does well enough, Um, it it just never makes back what they want. Um, Part of that is reasons that have nothing to do with anything we can get into here. Uh, and then, you know, obviously you don't get Superman back on the big screen uh, until Man of Steel. And we get somebody to kind of take a whole new approach, you know. Um, 
While at the same time, if you watch this movie, Zack Snyder honors this movie in many, many ways. Um, and so I think that's really cool. But that would be a whole nother podcast. Um, so, uh, Scott, um, normally uh, we do recommendations for everybody. Uh, and so I'm wondering what you might want to recommend to everybody. Oh, man. The problem is I, I've, I've got a book recommendation. I've got a television recommendation. And I've been struggling about which one to give because they're both really good. I almost want to cheat and do both of them right now just because I don't, I, I don't want you just to make do me Just do both of them. Just oh, do both of them. Okay. I'm going to start with a book I mean, recommend- we all need things to do these days. So. I know. Right. <laughs> well, if you need something to do... Uh, today, I just finished the 17th book in my favorite fantasy series, uh, which was Battleground by Jim Butcher, which is a novel of the Dresden Files. It is the 20th anniversary of the release of the series for the, uh, the first book. And to celebrate, he released two books, book 16 and book 17, two months apart. One in July and one last Tuesday. And if you're yes. not, I know, if you're not familiar, the Dresden Files basically imagine a wizard who works as a PI in Chicago. It's told in the first person. So it's like you're reading an old Raymond Chandler detective pulp novel. But then you throw in wizards and werewolves and vampires and fairies and, you know, all the mythology. And it is just popcorn. So when I say there's 17, I mean, there are 17 novels as of this month. There are two short story collections. There's even graphic novels and it's all canon. And like, and if you like, you can go as far down the rabbit hole as you want. The audiobooks are read by James Marsters, you know, of Buffy fame as Spike. I buy the book and the audiobook because I want to own the book, but I want James Marsters to read it to me because he is the voice of Harry for me. And that's the na- main character's name is Harry Dresden. And yes, they make jokes about being a wizard named Harry. So it's it's just a delightful series. And if you need something to just sink your teeth into, you got 17 books to just like go for it, man. That's awesome. That's awesome. So you said you had a book recommendation, which I'm always uh, – I mean you had a TV recommendation, which I'm always interested in too. So what was it that you wanted to recommend there? Well, I've actually been talking to you about it, so I have to let your listeners know. I, my wife and I have been binging through Bosch on Amazon. Oh, that's right. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, uh, we just started season six last night. There are six seasons on Amazon currently, and they just started production on season seven like a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's based on a series of novels by Michael Connelly. It exists in the same universe as The Lincoln Lawyer, if you ever saw that Matthew McConaughey movie. And it's about a army vet who is like a 20-year veteran of Hollywood homicide. So it's a, it's a police procedural, you know, hard-edged cop, bends the rules for justice, and it's I don't know. It's very neo-noir. He loves jazz. He's kind of an old soul. Uh, but like a complete, it's uh, he's played by Titus Welliver, who's been in a lot of Ben Affleck's. Been actually in every movie Ben Affleck's directed. He, you know, he's one of those guys. Like you see his face and you go, I've seen him in something. And it's just a really good cop drama set in L.A. and and you get six seasons on Amazon just a binge away. 
Nice. Well, uh, you know, I am going to recommend, um, and, and I know uh, I'm going to recommend this. It's going to sound weird, but I know a lot of people that I think have, have done this, uh, the same thing that I did, um, which is that um, I stopped watching The Office when Michael left. And I had never gone back and rewatched the entire thing. Uh, and so I went back and rewatched the entire uh, run of The Office. And I will say the last three seasons are not my favorite. But I would say probably the last third of the last season was so heartwarming. And the last episode is so wonderful that it kind of made it worth it. And so, um, if you haven't gone back and rewatched The Office, uh, watched it through the whole thing, um, this it's it's going to be leaving Netflix this year, uh, so it's definitely worth checking out. And uh, again, man, that last episode, uh, regardless of what I thought of those last three seasons without Michael, was so heartwarming, so wonderful, and just brought all the warm feelings to my heart. So yeah, I'm going to recommend, uh, the office. And maybe if you just, maybe you've seen it a million times, just go rewatch the finale again, because it's so good. So, um, but Scott, it's was fantastic to have you back here on the show, uh, to talk about this for our 300th episode. So thanks for celebrating with me. And we're going to be having you back later on in the year. We're going to be covering some, uh, some stuff that's coming out on, um, HBO Max, they got the new version of The Witches coming out, so you're going to be back for that, which is exciting. But where can everybody find you with everything that you've got going on? Well, of course, you can follow me on Twitter at ScottDC27. You can uh, listen and subscribe to my podcast, the DC Film Squadcast, wherever it is that you find your podcast. You can also find us on YouTube. We're starting to branch out a little bit. And you can find us on YouTube at Squadcast Media. And you that is also where you can find the entire network of shows at SquadcastMedia.com. Well, and uh, you could find me on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and Pharaoh under the name MattRushing02. You could also find me uh, here on the network doing literary treks in the orb with Chris Jones. One is about the books and comics of Star Trek, and the other is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I'm over on the Nerd Party Network. Two shows there. One is called Owl Post with Drea Kaufman as we talk through one chapter of Harry Potter at a time. We're in the middle of the Deathly Hallows right now, and it's so exciting. And then, of course, doing Aggressive Negotiations, a Star Wars podcast with my good friend John Mills, as we are talking about Star Wars each and every week. It's so much fun. We're going through a commentary series right now for The Mandalorian as we wait for Season 2, so check that out. But thank you so much for joining us, and y'all come back down here. Thank you.